What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA meeting. Let's talk with Lisa podcast where we talk all things MMA. I hope you guys are having an awesome day. Got some training in the other day, hitting the bag a bit in my backyard. Feels very nice to be out in the warm weather, firing some shots out at a heavy bag. But what's going on in MMA? Now, regarding Kamar Usman versus Gilbert Burns, it's the next pay per view event. It's the next really big card, and it's one of the biggest cards in recent memory, right? Now we know some more details about the training camps. So Henry Hooft, their head coach, is not going to be training either of them. He's just going to watch, just like you see in the Ultimate Fighter when two of the fighters under one coach, they're fighting each other. The, usually the head coach just stays out and watches, you know? Same sort of thing is happening, and it seems like Kamaru Usman is going to Denver. So he's not going to be training in Florida, where I believe Gilbert Burns is probably going to be training at, right? So Burns probably going to have a bit more of a comfortable environment staying where he usually trains whereas Usman's moving over somewhere where he's gonna be training with Cosmo Alexander that kickboxer you guys probably all know that knocked out Sage Norcott with one punch so he has an amazing training partner or even coach I don't know exactly what Cosmo's role is in Kamaru Usman's entire training camp but that does not hurt man without Henry Hooft that would have hurt Kamaru Usman if he couldn't get anybody else anybody that was really high level in striking to prepare for Gilbert Burns because again Burns is gonna have a majority of the striking advantages going to his side now that we know that who exactly is Burns training with, you know? Possibly training with the same wrestling coaches, Barzini and Greg Jones, to prepare for the wrestling of Kamaru Usman. And if that's the case, that's a huge advantage for Gilbert Burns coming into this fight. So when it comes to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, he's pretty much above everybody else in that whole gym. As we know from the older Black Zillions who moved with Henry Hooft, I believe they're now called Sanford MMA or something like that. They were called Hard Knocks before. They changed their name like a thousand times so I, I apologize if I'm wrong about the gym name but even when I go and look about who their head Brazilian jiu-jitsu coaches I can't even see who it is is it still Jorge Santiago because he was the head coach for BJJ for the Black Zillions but all I can really see they have two wrestling coaches Greg Jones and Kami Barzini which shows how their wrestling skills are absolutely top-notch and they have Henry Hooft as their MMA coach and as far as I know Gilbert Burns is probably the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist that ever stepped foot in that gym right even Black Zillions, Hard Knocks, and El Sanford MMA. So I don't know exactly who Kamaru Usman is going to be training with for the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu aspect of the game because Burns is another level, man. Besides Damian Maya, it's going to be very rare for Kamaru Usman to fight someone at that same level. But actually, the most important thing coming to this fight is the mental aspect of it. They've trained together for years now, right? They've rolled with each other. They sparred together. So they understand some tendencies that probably we haven't even seen before. And maybe they know how to handle it or they don't know how to handle it. They can either respect it too much or they feel very comfortable under it. So maybe Kamar Usman holds his own when he rolls with Gilbert Burns in the gym. And maybe he's a little bit more comfortable in the area. We have no idea. Or it could be the other way around. Whenever they roll, Burns is just absolutely dominating him and submitting him left and right. And that could deter Kamar Usman from even attempting takedowns. When training partner fights training partner, the mental battles they have to go through is of course way more important. But in this one, it's magnified. And it could only mean that Kamar Usman was comfortable and confident enough to move away and still believe that he's going to win this fight. And Kamar Usman winning this fight is going to show a new wrinkle into his fight IQ, into his style, as well as his fight IQ to overcome, on paper, this bad matchup for him. And I've been watching a bunch of Petrion vs. Josie Aldo footage lately. That fight really intrigues me because... People are sleeping on Josie Aldo a bit. There's been this really weird narrative throughout his entire career, which I've talked about plenty of times, where whenever he loses, people just want to say he's over the hill. But then when he comes back and destroys some opposition, he's back all of a sudden. You know that whole thing? It's never in between when Josie Aldo enters the door. You know, it's always, he's over the hill, always better than ever. 
That's always what the narrative is. It just depends who you're asking. Where I think it's more somewhere around the middle. You can see some things here and there that he doesn't do the same. That he's probably behind a bit. But there's also other aspects of his game, which he still does pretty well. I will personally say... I lean towards more that he's not the same fighter. Looking at some of his defensive tendencies and the lack of offense with his entire body pretty much, he's only really boxing at this point. Yes, he's found new wrinkles with the body shots and he's really polishing those skills, but the knees, the kicks, and some of the other aggressive attacks that he used to go with have completely disappeared from his game. And his defense, such as his pivoting and slipping ability and all that stuff, it's still there, but it's only there because his speed is kind of still there. You know what I'm saying? When you look at his fight with Marlon Moraes, he got away from a lot of the punches because of just his quick retractions. Yes, he'll pick his hand up. Yes, he would pivot. And yes, he would slip on the inside a lot, actually. He would slip on the inside and bang with that overhand right over the shoulder. But you're able to get away from shots by simply speeding his way out of there. And when he gets old enough where the speed starts to go away, I can expect Josie Aldo to really be over the hill to where it's obvious to everybody. And that's why this fight with Petra Jan is going to be really interesting how it's going to go down because Jan is just on this momentum. He's super confident. The mental stability is all there. Jose Aldo has to be motivated for this fight. He has to treat it like it's the most important fight of his entire career. And with that, he has to use every tool in his toolbox. Everything. Boxing for a long duration with Petra Jan is eventually going to catch him. He has to mix up game a bit. He needs to start kicking out the leg whenever Petrion starts punching over his knees. Possibly intercept or counter with his knees when Petrion is lunging with his punches. And also the tie plum can eventually be used there as well. And that's more of what I want to see from Josie Aldo. A lot more clinch work, although Petrion is extremely capable there. I would even say underrated to a point. His inside trips are amazing. And he has blinding elbows in there, man. I can see where Petrion starts punching over his knees. Or in other words, leaning over, putting a lot of weight on the front foot for a forward aggression can actually catch up with him. You see Petrion a lot of times, he'll throw that right straight and lean in far forward, switches right after, and throws out a big left overhand in succession. He does that a lot. He dropped your eye favor with it. He did it many times against Jimmy Rivera. Jose Aldo has to see those kind of things coming, right? They're big movement attacks. Even though Petrion doesn't always go with these kind of big movements, he's really good off the jab, and he has a well-timed short right uppercut that could potentially catch Josie Aldo if he ducks his head or uses Jurassic head movement. But the big punches that Petrion commits with are those switching stance combinations that he lunges over with, right? And he's never really going back when he does those, right? It's really hard for him to retract and retreat mid combinations and possibly the pivoting or even going for a takedown if Josie wants to bring that back from the Korean zombie fight. There's many tools that Josie Aldo can use to can deal with those combinations that Petrion goes for. And we've seen Petrion get dropped before when he fought John Dotson coming in too much and he's a little bit too slow to get away. And John Dotson actually backed up to the cage and bounced off it and attacked with the left hand. Right where Josie Aldo can just get off the center line, possibly block some of those hooks get off the center line, fading out from under, pivoting the right straight and countering with the check left hook over the top. Whatever he has to do, there's many ways he can go about dealing with that committed, aggressive, three-punch boxing style that Petrion loves to go for, you know? But that is asking for a very committed, on point, not over the hill Josie Aldo to compete with Petrion, which again, he just fought Marlon Moraes and he did pretty well in that fight. Most people believe he won against who everybody thought was the most dangerous striker in the entire division. His aggressive boxing style was able to really provide problems that Marlon Moraes had to deal with against the Henry Cejudo fight, right? That pressure is really taking down his game. Against Petr Jan, it's a bit different because Jan is a lot more patient and he loves that kind of back and forth. Whereas Marlon Moraes likes to be more of the hammer and he doesn't deal well with being the nail. So there's a different mentality and confidence about Petr Jan compared to when Jose Aldo fought Marlon Moraes. And also, Marlon Moraes isn't as clean of a boxer 
as Petrianis, right? So the boxing approach for Jose Aldo in that fight was generally a better game plan compared to going that same route with Petrian. But that's not even the most important aspect, to be honest. So we found out that they used to train together. I don't know how many times, I don't know how often, but they trained together four years ago. Petrian was 5-1 in his professional career. They were trained together after Conor McGregor knocked out Jose Aldo. So that shattering loss of Jose Aldo's career after that fight is when Petrian trained with him. And no matter who you are, when you train with a specific fighter that you are now deemed to compete up against, there is always a mental aspect that comes into it from feeling out that guy even if it was four years ago. Because even though Jose Aldo has regressed more compared to the progression of Petrian, there could be mental qualities that come into this fight that can actually impact it greatly, such as Patreon maybe respecting him too much in the fight. Maybe he got knocked out in training with Jose Aldo. You never know because Eduardo Dantes, who witnessed them spar together, he alluded that Jose Aldo had his way with Patreon. In quotes, he says, and about them training together, you probably already know how it must have gone, right? Unquote, in favor of Jose Aldo. And he also mentioned things about Aldo was heavier and stronger, all this stuff. And Jan was skinny before. I will say technique-wise, there's not much to take out of this. It's the mental part of it, right? Because we don't know how the training has gone. We don't know how they sparred. We don't know exactly what happened in there because Nova Junior was very much known to have crazy sparring sessions where people are hurting each other, trying to knock each other out, all that sort of stuff. So that brings an interesting dynamic to the fight that makes it even harder to predict, actually. Now, here are the questions that come out of all this. Is Patreon going to be too respectful? Is he going to be even more motivated and come after Jose Aldo with a cerebral mindset? Is he going to be gunshot? Is he going to chase the knockout? Like, we don't know exactly how this is going to happen. Is Jose Aldo going to be more of a father figure and kind of undermean and underestimate Petrion because of how they spar together? Is he going to be super confident that he can deal with anything Petrion comes in there with? Probably know some tendencies that maybe Jan has never even fixed after. It's always a very interesting dynamic, and that's something that really intrigues me. And also, Eduardo Dantes is predicting, because of what he's seen before from the two and what he sees now from the two, he believes Jose Aldo is a better boxer, he's better technically. They have different styles, so it's hard to compare, but he says that Jose Aldo has better technique, and he's predicting a second-round knockout. That's a pretty outlandish prediction, right? Um, he's also a long-time training partner of Jose Aldo, so that's probably a bit of bias going into that. All right, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this. If Eduardo Dantes is right that Jose Aldo knocks out Petrion in the second round, I will put Eduardo Dantes' face on all my prediction thumbnails because that's so outlandish. I would never predict that. And it seems like Amanda Nunez is finally considering retirement. I don't think she should do it. She can absolutely do it. And she's the greatest women's fighter of all time. But there's one record I want to see her beat. She's so close of just smashing every record and beating everybody. The only thing she doesn't have yet is the title defense record at 135 pound division, which Ronda Rousey has with six title defenses. Amanda Nunes has five. So two more title defenses to break that record, and there's absolutely nothing left to do. And this also includes a fight with Valentina Shevchenko. I believe Amanda Nunes should fight like an Aspen lad to get that six title defense, and then her very last fight in MMA, it should be against Valentina Shevchenko the third time. And if she's able to go through all of that, all those accomplishments, all those achievements, I personally wouldn't do it, but there's going to be a lot of people that might even say that Amanda Nunes is the greatest MMA fighter of all time, or at least top five. I personally wouldn't do it because, again, my list is always trumped by competition. Your competition means everything, and the biggest thing lacking when you compare her to some of her male counterparts is level of competition. So that's why I couldn't even put her in top five. I probably couldn't even put her in top ten, even with all those records involved. 
but I can see arguments for it. I can actually even see, hypothetically, I could see arguments to put her as the greatest MMA fighter of all time. It's also a great PR thing that the UFC can roll with. I mean, we're talking about defending the belt in two different divisions, which only Henry Cejudo and Daniel Cormier have done. Title defense record in the bantamweight division was seven, which is actually, what, the fifth most in UFC history? 13-fight win streak, which even surpasses fighters like Tony Ferguson and Habib Nurmagomedov, defeated eight future or previous or current UFC champions, which is one of the most in UFC history, might even be the most in UFC history, and being the best that women's MMA has to offer in fantastic fashion for most of the fights. And that brings a further question that's much more important. So Amanda Nunez's competition is not that strong. It's not the strongest. Yes, she'd be Chris Cyborg. She'd be Jermaine Durandamy and Valentina Shevchenko twice. You could say the Ronda Rouseys and the Misha Tates of the world and the Sarah McMahons of the world. But you have to know that Shevchenko, GDR, maybe Holly Holm, and definitely Chris Cyborg, like those are the cream of the crop right there. And that's her strong list of competition. But the most important question is, when is women's MMA going to progress? The 115 pound division is great right now, but that can still get better as well. But here's the thing. So women's MMA entered the UFC in 2012 with Ronda Rousey versus Liz Carmouche, which were the only two fighters rostered at the time. They didn't like sign like a bunch of fighters at the same time. They signed two fighters to put on one big fight, see how it goes. It was successful. They went on with it. Women's MMA has been along for a long time. I mean, we're talking about fighters like Valentina Shevchenko, who made her MMA debut in 2003. So women's MMA has been around for a very long time. But the entry into the UFC is what skyrocketed and put it really on the map. Before, it was kind of a thing people didn't really know too much about. Strikeforce has some interesting fights, but it was never a known commodity that everybody kept tuning in like it is now. So you can really say the start of women's MMA, the important start of women's MMA, started in like 2012. And remember, the entry of Ronda Rousey did not only influence more people to spectate, but also for girls to compete. There's a young beast of generation of talent training to explode on the scene. So maybe in about, what, six to eight years from now, those five-year-old girls who were influenced by Ronda Rousey have only hit their early teenage years. That is what's going to influence a lot of these younger girls to start martial arts and eventually see that goal that they can make it to the UFC. Before, that wasn't even a thing. Misha Tate even talked about it. She said like when she was fighting, there was no end goal to it. It was just she liked to fight. There was no financial stability. There was no goal. It was just for the love of the fight. But because it entered in the UFC, now there's a goal and now it's going to actually influence younger girls who are like currently 12 years old or so to get into martial arts, eventually get into MMA and start competing at a very young age. So I think the boom of talent for women's MMA is going to be like 8 to like 14 years from now, to be honest, because that's when you get these younger girls who grew up watching MMA getting into martial arts and their goal is to get into the UFC become champion one day, which is now a goal where it wasn't eight years ago. They're going to get really good really quick. I believe in like 2028, 2027, and I think it's going to be a giant boom. You're going to see a lot of talent coming then. That possibility, that opportunity wasn't even there until eight years ago. That was not a long time ago, man. We're still kind of in the infancy of women's MMA. So the girls who are 12 years old right now who started watching MMA when they were like four or five years old, they've gotten to martial arts ever since. Once they become 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, there's going to be some monsters out there, man. There's going to be some really skilled fighters and this lack of talent that we're seeing now is not going to even be a thing. And now let's go to the questions here. So we're going to start with the most liked comment. And that is Dennis Morrison Wesley. Who do you think Charles Oliveira should face? And does he deserve a top five opponent? Let's look at the rankings here. So Charles Oliveira is number seven. Just defeated Kevin Lee, who's now number eight. And the guys above him, Paul Felder, who was actually his last loss back in 2017. I was actually there. 
but Paul Felder just lost to Dan Hooker. They can do a rematch, Paul Felder versus Charles Oliveira too. That'd still be a very interesting fight. I think Oliveira would win that fight this time. But I can absolutely see a top five opponent. But the thing is here, when you look at the top five, you got Dan Hooker, who's going to be fighting Dustin Poirier. We have Conor McGregor, who's busy on Twitter at the moment. We got Tony Ferguson, who's open. And we got Justin Gage, who's going to be fighting Habib. The only real opponent he's going to be able to fight in the top five is Tony Ferguson. So it's either going to be Paul Felder or Tony Ferguson. And I think the Paul Felder fight is a lot more likely to happen because of the rematch quality of it. But who would not love to see him fight Tony Ferguson? The striking would be amazing. The grappling would be amazing. It would be a high-paced fight. A lot of power getting thrown. Oliveira doesn't have the greatest head movement. He does stand very tall. And he can get in the way of some of those shots, especially the longer Tony Ferguson. So I do see them both actually taking quite a bit of damage in the fight because Oliveira has underrated countering skills. Very underrated counter overhand right and left hook. And he has an active, precise jab. How's that going to work against the longer Tony Ferguson who commits with a lot more aggression behind some of his attacks? But here's the big question. Will Charles Oliveira be able to last five rounds with Tony, right? Because Oliveira doesn't have the same kind of power that Gaethje showed in his fight with Tony Ferguson, right? Doesn't have the same kind of back foot fighting the same way Gaethje can. And that's absolutely what's going to happen in the fight. Tony Ferguson is going to march him back. And I just wonder how Oliveira is going to not take a quick back step for a counter shot, but actively move back on some of those long strikes of Tony Ferguson. Tony's going to have to change some things up now because even if it was known before, Tony has been shown to get hit by some counter shots while he commits forward too much with some of his attacks, especially with the inside leg kicks that he throws. But now with some of his elongated jabs and stuff like that, a lot of fighters are going to start picking up on it. A lot of fighters are going to start answering Tony Ferguson for some of the stuff he does. So he has to make some adjustments to his game because he was getting caught all night by Justin Gaethje, right? And Charles Oliveira might be able to make some adjustments to also replicate a lot of what Gaethje did out there. Especially because he has already shown good quality in his counter striking. And he also does have respectable power in his hands. But I will have to say right now, Tony, the same guy, nothing changes about him from the damage that he sustained in the Justin Gaethje fight. I still think Tony might be able to outdo Charles Oliveira pretty much in most areas of the fight. Because Oliveira doesn't have the same kind of footwork and especially the same kind of head movement that Justin Gaethje has. But even still... I can absolutely see Charles Oliveira backstepping a lot of those punches just like Gaethje and landing some counter shots 100%. I just don't know if he's going to be able to hold that up for five rounds even if it does happen. Just something I don't necessarily know about yet because I have never seen Oliveira even go past the third round yet. And I have seen him before gas out a bit. But that's a very similar thing that happened with Justin Gaethje in his career. He used to always kind of gas out in that third round and onward. Never really made it to the fifth round before. But against Tony Ferguson, man, he picked the shots, didn't get overly aggressive, and blow his wad. And he was able to last five rounds and could have gotten even more if if allowed. So I think it's going to be the Paul Felder rematch, but I can absolutely see a Tony Ferguson fight there as well. And now we go to Homeboy360. What is the best performance ever in each weight class? Example, Garbrandt vs. Cruz. Ooh, that's a tough one. There's a lot of good performances. Um, At heavyweight, I'll probably say Cain Velasquez versus JDS2. We absolutely just shut him down. At light heavyweight, I have to say Anderson Silva versus Forrest Griffin. At middleweight, Israel Adesanya versus Yuval Romero. I'm just kidding. Probably Anderson Silva versus Chris Lieben. Ooh, at welterweight, there's a lot. There's Stephen Thompson versus Johnny Hendricks. Kamar Usman versus Tyron Woodley. George St. Pierre has some good performances against uh, Matt Serra the second time against Jake Shields due to the magnitude of the fight. Lightweight, you got Habib versus Connor, obviously. Tony Ferguson versus RDA. Well, I'd probably say the best one is Conor McGregor versus Eddie Alvarez. That was just perfection. At featherweight, Max Holly versus Josie Aldo 2 is a strong one. That's a hard one to beat. Although Josie Aldo's performance against Frankie Edgar the second time was a good one. 
Yeah, I'd probably say Max versus Jose Aldo too. At Bantamweight, it has to be Garbrandt versus Cruz. Henry Cejudo versus Cruz is actually a really good one too. There is also TJ Dillashaw versus Hannah Burrell the first time. That's right up there. Like that and Garbrandt versus Cruz, I think those are probably the top two. And the flyweight division, Demetrius Johnson versus Ray Borg or Demetrius Johnson versus Wilson Hayes. Either of the two suffice. The women's featherweight division is obviously Amanda Nunes versus Cyborg. You can even see the Felicia Spencer one because of how dominant it was. The women's bantamweight division has to be Amanda Nunes either fighting Ronda Rousey or Misha Tate. Misha Tate was a little bit longer and it showed more facets of the fight, the ground game, the striking, everything, right? Women's featherweight division, Valentina Shevchenko versus Priscilla Cachuera. And the women's strawweight division, ooh, there's a lot of good ones. There's Rose versus Ioana the first time. Actually, I had to say Ioana versus Carla Esparza. That was another perfect performance. And then we'll go to Zach Lopopolo, who would be the champ of each division if everybody waited at their walk-around weight. I don't exactly know what you mean. So if John Jones, for an example, he walks around like 225, 230, maybe a little bit higher, he'd be a heavyweight, right? So he can't actually compete in the light heavyweight division. Is that what you mean? I'm going to take it as that. So heavyweight would be tough because John Jones versus Stipe is actually a very competitive fight. I think Jones probably loses to Ngannou, but Francis could also defeat Stipe. But Stipe can defeat Francis, of course, and DC can defeat Francis. You know, I'll stick to Stipe for heavyweight. I think he's like the safest pick, you know? Light heavyweight, it's kind of funny because you might even have Tony Ferguson fight up there. Given that he could walk around at 200 pounds. I think it would be Israel Adesanya. It'd be tough because you do have Yola Romero up there. Paulo Costa would be a heavyweight. You have Tyron Woodley, you got Darren Till. I just don't see any of them beating Israel Adesanya, to be honest. And then the middleweight division, I'd probably say Habib. Habib can weigh anywhere from like 185 to 195, right? Yeah, i go with Habib on that one. Although, Kamar Usman weighs like 190s. So where do you exactly put him? Technically, he'd be in the light heavyweight division if he's weighing in the 190s. So I say Habib because of that. You have a lot of lightweights, bigger lightweights, and you have some of the smaller welterweights like Stephen Thompson and Jorge Masvidal. I don't see any of them beating Habib, to be honest. Perhaps Stephen Thompson would be a tough test because of his movement. And if he doesn't commit too much, Kind of just tries to outpoint Habib from the outside due to Habib's lack of quick movements. Possibly, but I don't know, man. It'd be tough. It'd be tough for anybody to be Habib at the middleweight division at walk-around weight. But I think that would be the most stacked division, for sure. The welterweight division, so this we're going to see a lot of the big featherweights and the small lightweights. That's actually a really tough one because you have a good pick in Volkanovski, right? Because he can defeat Brian Ortega. He has a likely chance to defeat Zabit. You know, Ally Quinta and those guys like that. But there comes Conor McGregor. Right? Connor is a tough one. Connor is really good at fighting shorter fighters. Made almost a career at doing that, to be honest. It'd be a tough fight between Volkanovski and Connor McGregor, to be honest. But picking the winner right now off the top of my head, I'd probably say Connor would win. So I'll say the 170-pound champ would be Connor, and then 155 would be the really small featherweights. There is any, to be honest. But it's mostly the bantamweights. Most of the bantamweight division will be fighting in this weight class. And to be honest, Josie Aldo doesn't fit in that. Marlon Marais doesn't fit in that. So you have guys like Patrick Yan, maybe Corey Sanhagen. Cody Garbrandt, Dominic Cruz, Aljamain Sterling, like most of the really good bantamweights you're going to see in this division. I think it's a contest between three fighters. I think it's between Aljamain Sterling, Petrion, and Cody Garbrandt. I think Petrion defeats Aljamain Sterling. I'm pretty confident in that. Cody brings an interesting fight to Petrion, and Aljamain Sterling, actually Aljamain might even lose also to Cody Garbrandt. Cody has really good takedown defense, just generally good wrestling as it is for MMA, and his boxing so far superior. Hand speed is a big weapon against Aljamain Sterling and also footwork speed to make his way in. He has one shot knockout ability. He can probably get in on some of those kicks from Sterling but as we've seen with TJ Dillashaw you could probably mask in some things and land that late high kick 
Petra Jan versus Cody Garbrandt is the real fight here. It's a fight a lot of people would want to see, man. I think the safer pick is Petrion. I want to go with Cody Garbrandt. I'll stick with Petrion on that one. Right? Davidson Figueroa will also compete in that weight class. And he'd probably be a top five fighter for sure. And then the 145 pound weight class, which is where most of the flyweights are going to compete in. I think it's a given for Joseph Benavides, to be honest. And then when you look at the women divisions, like there is nothing for Amanda Nunes, to be honest. It's pretty much everybody fighting up against each other in another weight. I don't think anything changes, to be honest. And possibly Shevchenko might even fight up against straw weights because maybe some of them walk around very similar to what she walks around because she doesn't cut much weight to make 125, like 10 pounds. So possibly we can see Weili Zhang versus Valentina Shevchenko for the 135 pound weight class where Weili Zhang might weigh like 130, high 120s. And make that limit, you know? So that'd be an interesting one, you know? Rose Namajunas would be a 125er in that case. And Joanna would be a 135er. The real interesting one would be Zhang Weili versus Valentina Shevchenko for the 135-pound belt. But I think Shevchenko beats her, to be honest. I think she's better in almost every area. And then we go to Speedy Craig. Who is the worst matchup for O'Malley in the bantamweight division? And do you think he'll do well in the featherweight division? Love the vids, man. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. So the worst matchup so far for Sean O'Malley in the bantamweight division... I think Al Jermaine Sterling would be a very tough fight for him. Really long, really active footwork, really aggressive as of late, and a really good little single shot. And he's amazing at getting the back. So I think on the ground, for sure, he has a major advantage over Sean O'Malley. Even though how great Sean O'Malley's, even though the progression that Sean O'Malley's making in his BJJ skills, as of right now, he'd be a tough fight for O'Malley. Petrion would put some pressure on the guy, and his fundamental defense would be affected to block some of the flash and enter on the longer fighter. And possibly even going for some of those takedowns, Petrion's a very, very well-rounded fighter. People just remember his boxing skills, man. He's an amazing wrestler. And that would also test O'Malley in all areas of the game. I think Petrion might have better boxing skills, but also better grappling skills. And that mixes up for a very tough overall contest for Sean O'Malley in that one. So I say one of the two, but I'd probably say Aljamain Sterling. And how would he do at featherweight? It's too soon to tell. You know, I've had this question a few months ago, and it's still too soon to tell. Those guys are much bigger. They hit very hard. A lot of well-rounded opponents up there. Too soon. As of right now, I'd probably say not that great. Then we go to Finn Raider. In MMA, we have jokes about the best versions of fighters. C-Level Kane, Dad Cerrone, non-black opponent Gustafsson, etc. But what are some of the worst versions of fighters like Post Hill Woodley, etc.? UFC Ben Askren. Two-eyed visiting, that is so true. Um, I would have to say Travis Brown, the boxer. Ronda Rousey, the boxer. Fighting a cheater, Mark Hunt. Left hook prone, Luke Rockhold. The statue of God, Ewell Romero. Rumble Johnson, the wrestler. And Habib prepared Tony Ferguson. If you guys don't know the last two, five out of the eight fights that Anthony Johnson has attempted a takedown, he has lost. And whenever the Tony Ferguson and Habib fight got canceled, the very next fight, Tony Ferguson had a tough go. Edson Barboza was a war. Lando Fanata dropped him. Kevin Lee got him into mount and actually hurt him. Anthony Pettis dropped him. And Justin Gaethje finished him. And the two other fights, RDA and Donald Cerrone, even though he lost the first round of Cerrone, he never really got hurt and almost dominated the whole fight against RDA. And then we go to Ixion Nibieski Talk. Do you think it would be beneficial for the UFC to support YouTube channels such as yours with some video materials and enabling you to use it in order to produce some higher quality content and therefore promote not only yours but also their brand along with the sport of MMA in general? Wouldn't this kind of agreement be a win-win solution? Love your channel, brother. Hashtag Weasel Nation. Thank you so much, man. And Yes, of course, there are some channels that will take this a little bit too far and start actually like just showing fights and stuff, which is actually what the organization does not want to happen. And it's why they're pretty strict on this matter. But absolutely, so many people 
became fans of the sport by watching like highlight videos on YouTube. How many people became a Merkel Krokop fan watching highlights of him head kicking fools in MMA and kickboxing? I mean, I didn't even know about the sport if I never even saw BJ Penn on YouTube. I wouldn't probably know about the sport for years after that. It 100% promotes both of course the channel as well as the brand. It brings in more casual fans to watch the sport. People don't even know much about the sport. They watch things about Conor McGregor, for instance. How many Conor McGregor videos up there get millions of views, getting people more interested in the sport. People don't know some of the ups and downs and the back and forth fights that some of these fighters have had. And the only way they can really find out is by ordering a pay-per-view. But you already need those people to be interested in the sport. What if they're not interested in the sport? How exactly are you going to get them interested? Oh, they could watch like the fight nights. But now it's on ESPN Plus and it's not as easy to get to. It's not as easy for just, for example, my mom or something to, to start watching it, you know? It's not like it's on TV and you could just scroll through and happen to find it. Just like it happened for everybody when Foursquare and Foss Devin Bonner. Everybody's on the internet these days. A lot of people are on YouTube, a lot of people are on social media. If they're just like materials channels can use or content creators can use to further evolve the brand and further evolve the sport in general, it helps everybody involved and also creates a bigger community because now people want to watch it more because they saw these crazy highlights, right? Or crazy instances in the UFC, for example. And some of them might even want to later be a content creator themselves and this continues a growth in content and a growth in community. It's a very big deal to have not just themselves, they have others that they don't even have to pay. They have others promoting their brand just by allowing them to have some materials of footage, you know, for an example, just by allowing that simple component, that simple just video material part of it greatly supports the brand and promotes it. And you create many promoters for your brand. The only have people who work for the organization, why not just have other people around social media promote it as well? It could be thousands of creators, thousands of promoters promoting the sport and promoting the brand, it would be everywhere. And for instance, a content creator can make some stuff for a fight that's about to happen like that weekend, create some big stuff and it gets big on YouTube or wherever it is. And the casual fans or people don't know much about the sport, they catch on to it. And that's what pushes them to buy the pay-per-view or something like that, you know? These days, it's a lot harder to know about the sport because there's so many paywalls and there's so many things you have to go through, so many signups and all this stuff you have to go through to just watch a fight, right? It's so hidden these days. So yeah, I absolutely think... Just enabling not entire fights, of course, but like some video materials for breakdowns or highlight videos, whatever it is that helps the fan get more involved and intrigued in the sport and helps branch off into that casual sphere. It helps everybody involved. Every single person from the fans to the content creators to the organization to the fighters themselves. It helps everybody. You know, for instance, for an example, if some breakdowns or highlight videos are able to get on the training page of YouTube, for example, like my Sean O'Malley breakdown, and because it helps Sean O'Malley, it also helps the organization because people want to watch Sean O'Malley are going to only be able to watch under that organization's banner. So it helps everybody. If you can get more exposure for a fighter, it helps the brand. If you get more explosion of the brand, it helps fighters. You know, that's just how it goes. It's a cycle, but because there's a lack of video material allowed and enabled, it actually slows down that that progression. And it makes everybody's job pretty much harder. And then we go to Dino Bakich. Do any of the active welterweights have a chance to become the welterweight GOAT? It's so talented and so stacked and competitive these days. I actually don't see any one fighter in the welterweight division right now that is going to carry on that belt for a long time. The most likely is Kamaru Usman, but he's having his hardest test to date as his very next fight. And there are other guys that are coming up like Santiago Ponzinibbio, who has a very interesting style as well against him. 
We'll see how Jeff Neal works on his wrestling. But as of right now, Kamaru Usman is the most likely chance of becoming the welterweight go, but I just don't see it. GSP set that bar so far. No one's even close at this point. Not even Tyron Woodley when he was the champ. He wasn't even close. I know Joe Rogan and some people were trying to make an argument that Tyron Woodley might become the greatest welterweight of all time, but in reality, it was way too early to say something like that. And the guy wasn't even close. Not, not even halfway there. And then number two, can Dylan White become a UFC fighter since he is considering a transition to MMA? Yeah, he could become a UFC fighter. If he transitions to MMA, I believe Dana and the UFC are going to sign him pretty early. They want to see how he's going to compete first in some like regional organization and stuff. Just like they did with Brock Lesnar, for example. See how he competes. See if he's anything special. If he gets some knockout or you know something spectacular happens, they'll sign him up even if he has like one or two fights professionally. Number three, what are your thoughts of Mike Perry only having his girlfriend in the corner for his next fight? What's going on with this guy, man? I like Mike Perry, but he's like a, he's a different breed, man. He's a different guy. Why doesn't he have a coach? Is it because of the pandemic and none of the gyms are open? Or at least they're opening now, but like he should be able to get a coach, right? I don't think his girlfriend, you know, not to discredit her or anything, you know, but like, I don't think she gives the best advice. And Mike Perry doesn't seem to be the most intelligent fighter. I'm not saying he's not intelligent, but he's just not like a Tony Ferguson or a Dominic Cruz or something like that to come up with game plans and stuff. And who is he fighting exactly? He's fighting Mickey Gall. So it is a good fight for him to actually win. He's far more powerful, better striker overall, very strong in the clinch. It's gonna be a tough fight for Mickey Gall, to be honest, but the lack of coaching and maybe lack of professional training might make this fight a lot tougher than it should be. And if anything goes wrong, especially in the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu aspect of the game, because we know Mickey Gall is probably a better grappler than Mikey Perry. If things get rough on the ground, like what? Who's gonna give him advice? And there's no crowd, so I actually don't want to hear the corner advice. We're gonna be able to hear every single word and it's going to be super cringe. I'm probably not going to be ready for that. And then we go to Dominic DeCoco. Should Tony move up to 170 and call out Jorge? I feel like that's a money fight for both of the fighters. I'm not mad at that. I don't know if Jorge would do it. Because Tony, even though he had a big fight against Justin Gaethje, what, 700,000 pay-per-view buys on ESPN, and he has had his name tied with Habib for a long time, yeah, he is a bit of a known commodity. And even his big following on social media, I think he has over a million followers on Instagram. He has a lot of followers on Twitter and he has good traction there as well. He's a pretty big name. Is it a big money fight for Jorge? Probably not, but I will like it. I like Tony going up to 170 and I like him fighting Jorge. I'm all in for the fight. I just don't know if logically it's going to happen. But at this point, if Jorge missed out the opportunity of fighting for a belt and Dana's like, hey man, now you got to fight someone else. And Nate's not open, let's say, and Connor's not open. I like Tony versus Jorge, even though there is Leon Edwards and there's Colby Covington, which a lot of people like to see as well. There's a lot of options for Jorge Mazda. But for this question, yeah, I'd love to see it. Also, I found as if TJ Dillashaw has been treated unfairly with the EPO stuff. Maybe because people don't understand the stuff. I feel he's still a legit and respectable contender thoughts. You're the best MMA YouTuber on the planet. Keep it up. Thank you so much, man. And yes, TJ is extremely skilled. We got to see how he's going to compete without EPO for sure. Because they're definitely going to be testing him when he comes back like crazy. But I think he's still going to be a dangerous contender for the bantamweights. And then we go to Joe D. Few questions for you. Who do you see being the worst matchup for Gilbert Burns besides Usman and the welterweight division? Do you think Masvidal made the right decision to sit out? Will Ferguson be given the next title shot after Gaethje? Or do you think Uncle Dana will give it to Connor? Thanks for the content. No, thank you for the question. So there's a lot of tough fights for Burns. Leon Edwards is not a walk in the park. Jorge Masvidal is actually a very difficult fight for him due to the fact that he could stop the takedowns, make it a stand-up fight. But even there, Burns is so capable. He can strike with Masvidal. There is also Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. 
decent takedown defense even when they get on the hips of him and his striking is far superior than Burns especially with that looking for that big shot from a distance style that Burns likes to go with he'll never catch Stephen Thompson with that kind of approach so actually I do see the Stephen Thompson right now might be the hardest fight for Burns there is also Santiago Ponzinibbio he will welcome that war on the feet and he will stuff the takedowns. I do think he's a more dangerous striker and a lot better with his jab, which is going to be a huge weapon against Burns to see the overhand from Burns, see the left hook from Burns, maybe even see some of those light kicks. So I will have to say Santiago Ponzinibbio and Stephen Thompson are probably the hardest fights for Gilbert Burns. I'm leaning more towards Ponzinibbio due to the light kicks that can affect Stephen Thompson, limit the movement and eventually catch him. Also, Thompson does make some mistakes of getting caught when he shouldn't be. So I'll stick with Santiago Ponzinibbio because he has better defensive boxing than Thompson does. He has insanely powerful light kicks as well. He has great takedown defense and he has power in his feet to hurt Burns. I think he's overall a better striker than Gilbert Burns and he could definitely go five rounds at a very fast pace. I do not think Masvidal made the right decision to sit out. He's not a champion at the moment. He's not Conor McGregor status. He's getting to be a big star, but he's not there yet. He's not as big as Nate Diaz even now. He's not as big as Conor McGregor. He's not as big as Habib. It'd even be tough to say he's bigger than Tony Ferguson. He's like around Tony Ferguson status. Given the 700,000 pay-per-view buy, if you want to give that to Tony Ferguson, as well as if you just look at the social media numbers, Tony Ferguson has more followers than him on any social media platform besides YouTube, of course, because I don't think Tony even has a channel. Yeah, so I don't think Jorge's at that level to assertively demand things with such authority at the moment. He needs to become the champion first. He's that guy that has to become a champion first. And going after the UFC is definitely a not good thing to do for anybody, even Conor McGregor, even Nate Diaz. It's never a good thing to go after the UFC the way he did because they're just not going to give you that title shot that you want now. They're not going to give you the same opportunities. They gave these opportunities to him before because they thought he would play ball. They thought he would be a decent businessman to deal with and they love his style. They love the way he fights. It was a great partner for them that they thought about and he's making it extremely hard for them, especially during a pandemic. They are just not going to appreciate it. They're, he's doing the same thing that Rashad Evans told fighters not to do in the past. Do not go after the organization like that. And I honestly think, I don't know this for sure, I think his manager is feeding him things about this. Feeding him things to get him to go into these battles with the organization. Kind of similar to what's happened with John Jones. And it's just not going to work. There's too many fighters that don't care. There's too many fighters that are just going to fight for their self-interest. There's too many fans who don't care at the end of the day. Yeah, they'll listen to it. It's fun to talk about. But they're not going to boycott fights because of one fighter's quarrels with the organization you know they they don't care at the end of the day they know that Jorge gets paid either way so the common average fan is not going to stop watching the sport that they love for one fighter because he's not getting paid what he thinks he should be getting paid it's just never going to happen and the most important thing to take away is you got to be smart with your career it's not a time and it's not a place to go balls to the wall and go all or nothing right you do not have a support system to back you up you don't have anything to fall back on you got to have strategies and tactics and be smart about it. You got to think of this like you're fighting in the octagon. You can't come out there and try to just brawl it out, you know, and hopefully win. Because this just seems like Joseph Benavidez trying to brawl with Francis Ngannou. Like, it's just not going to play well. And you cannot expect the fans who actually want to support this and back the fighter up. You can't expect them to get onto the ship only to be shipwrecked. You can't expect all the fans to back you up when you don't have a necessarily good strategy that is enticing to the fans. Because that's just all what it seems. It seems like a shipwreck waiting to happen. And then will Ferguson begin the next title shot or will Connor get it? Logically, Connor will get it first. Logically, Connor will get the fight before Ferguson is even considered, to be honest. Through a meritocracy, Ferguson deserves it over Connor even at this point. Even after losing so badly to Geishi, 
Ferguson still arguably deserves it more. But to be honest, if you were in charge of the organization, you'd probably also give it to Conor before Ferguson. So Ferguson's gonna have to take another fight. He's actually eyeing the Conor McGregor fight. Did you guys see his uh, Instagram and Twitter post? Calling out Conor. That's what he needs to do. He it's a very intelligent business move to do that. Go after Connor because Connor is the guy that they're looking at to give the next title shot. Connor also wants to fight. What's the most logical fight at the lightweight division at the moment to become the number one contender? Ferguson versus Connor. And it also is an enticing fight. It's a flavorable fight. Everybody's going to love it. Whether you think Connor is going to win, whether you think Ferguson's going to win, everybody agrees it's an amazing fight to put together. And also, it establishes the number one contender. If Connor goes and beats Ferguson, no one could doubt his claim to the title shot. No one could give him that kind of headache anymore. But if Ferguson goes and defeats Connor, the fans get what they want in the first place. Hopefully, Ferguson versus Habib, right? Or even Ferguson with a rematch with Gaethje. A lot of people want to see that as well. Full training camp Ferguson, full training camp Gaethje. How's that going to play out? Possibly with an audience. Then we go to Ellie. Which fighter has the most eatable ass? Okay, this is the question I really wanted to get to. You guys think Roy Nelson, huh? That's a very respectable answer. I have changed my real answer though. Norma Dumont is the only answer to this question. I suspect the UFC is going to be keeping her for a pretty long time. And yes, I do believe the organization keeps her on fighters for other than their fighting skills sometimes. I'm pretty sure a lot of you could throw out names right now and you would be correct. And to be honest, I'm not mad about it. And by Justin Sweeney, what crime will John Jones commit next and when will he do it? Yes, and whenever you expect it. Then we'll go to the Twitter questions. We're going to start with at AliFall00. Should Ngannou replace Conor in the pound-for-pound -pound rankings? Conor's last win is against an aging cowboy, and before that, it was in 2016 against Eddie Alvarez. Meanwhile, Ngannou has beaten Overeem former title challenger, Blades high-ranked, Kane and JDS both former champions, and Rosenstrike one of the dangerous heavyweights and high-level kickboxers, all within a time limit of 2-3 to three minutes. He should at least be number 10, right? Yeah, you could put an argument that Ngannou should be above Conor in the pound-for-pound -pound rankings. I don't exactly know how they're ranking it because... Yes, Conor defeated Jose Aldo. Yes, he defeated Eddie Alvarez. Yes, he has some really good performances. But this is like over five years ago when you count all of it. You know what I'm saying? So how far back do you actually look? Well, firstly, I don't think Conor should be number eight. He's the number eight pound for pound fighter in the world. He's above Max Holloway, which I don't agree with, even though he beat him like a century ago, Holloway's recent career holds way more value than Conor McGregor's. I just know for sure what they're really taking into account is championship status, so that's why they're not going to put Francis Agano above any champion or recent former champion, such as Robert Whitaker, who was number 13, right above Francis Agano. So that's not really going to happen unless Whitaker loses again or Agano wins again. You know, something like that happens where Agano has this long win streak where you could just can't deny him anymore, and Whitaker like loses another fight after losing the belt. I think that's exactly what they're taking into account here. Connor should not be up that high, and also keeping Connor high on the pound for pound rankings. It it doesn't make it too crazy when you see him go up three spots after a win, right? Because number eight to number five is just three spots. You know, he's right there. He's up. He's right there to make a leap and get right into like the top five. So I believe it's also a strategic plan they're making. I can see an argument for Francis being above Connor. And if I'm making the rankings, I can't look back five, six, seven years and take all of that into consideration. Because at that point, you know, if you're looking back for the guy's entire career in the UFC, how isn't like Dominic Cruz still in the top 15? You know, yeah, he lost twice in his last, what, four fights? Look at his entire UFC career for an example. Or you could look at guys like Josie Aldo, right? Why isn't Josie Aldo up there still? If you're counting years of wins and losses, I'll only look back like two years. And if you do that for Conor McGregor, it'd be hard to even put him in the top 10, to be honest. Then we go to Ali Akbar underscore H Shah. 
which four fight win streak would be the best in terms of competition? Cejudo beating DJ TJ Marlon Cruz, Adesanya beating Whitaker Romero Costa Cannonier, and then Gaethje defeating Tony Habib Conor Poirier. I think it's a tough one between Cejudo's and Gaethje. It's crazy because Cejudo already did his, whereas we're talking about Gaethje defeating Habib, Connor, and then Poirier. He only defeated one of the fighters you listed. And we're also talking about Adesanya defeating Costa and Kananir, which he hasn't done yet. Adesanya's won't really compare too much to Sohudos and Gaethje's. I think I said before that Gaethje's would be better. But if you really think about it, at the moment right now, DJ is like top three greatest of all time in many people's lists, right? He beat him in a very close fight. He beat, arguably at the time, the best bantamweight of all time in TJ Dillashaw. And he was on EPO. Yes, he went down and probably diminished himself. Couldn't take the same kind of shot. But still an EPO. Went down, fought the guy, finished him in 30 seconds. Whatever you want to give him. You got to give him some value for that. Defeated Mullen Morris, who was seen to be like the boogeyman of the bantamweight division. Finished him off too. And then finished the other greatest bantamweight of all time in Dominic Cruz. When you talk about Tony, Habib, Connor, and Poirier. At the moment, none of them are more credentialed or a better win than beating Demetrius Johnson, right? Habib and Tony can rival and even surpass TJ Dillashaw and Cruz's legacy. Connor surpasses Mullen Marais, and so does Dustin Poirier. So I'd probably say Geishi overall, but having DJ on your list of fighters beaten is a big one, you know? But I say overall, Geishi surpasses Sohudos. And then we go to at UA Smatico. If Bisping and Hendo were to go up against each other at their primes, who do you think would win? And do you think Bisping was the best middleweight in the UFC when he was the champion? Okay. And their primes, given that Bisping fought an old Dan Henderson, almost got knocked out, and some people actually thought Henderson still won the fight, I'd probably say no. Even though Bisping does have tools to absolutely beat Henderson, he just falls into that shot. He drops his jab whenever he throws it. He always talks about keeping your jab up, right? He kept talking about that when, um, I forgot exactly what fight he was talking about. You guys know when Karen Bryant was talking to Bisping about, you know, that's his style. He doesn't always keep his hands up, and Bisping's like, you always have to keep your hands up. And he told her, like, you're good at reading a teleprompter. Um, that whole thing, right? And Bisping kept talking about you got to keep your hands up. Well, that's what kind of plagued him whenever he fought Dan Henderson. He would throw the jab, throw a left hook, and he would drop it and get hit right over it by that right hand. Even though he has the technical skills to outdo Henderson in most facets of the game, especially in the stand-up, he just falls into it. Technique is not everything, right? Fighters make mistakes. And the guy with the big punch, the guy with the big right hand, all he needs to land at once. You make one big mistake and it's over, Right? All these fighters are human. All of them make mistakes. And Bisping makes that mistake plenty of times to drop that lead hand of his and it creates a window for the H-bomb. So I would like to say Bisping would win in his prime, but I think Henderson would win. And Bisping the best middleweight when he was a champion? No, no, absolutely not. I think Romero would have dealt him very well. And Bobby Knuckles is right there as well. Adesanya wasn't even in the UFC, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, Whitaker and Romero, before Adesanya came in, they were the two top guys, even when Bisping was the champ. And that shortly proved to be so. Then we go to at Cav. 2002-1926. Considering that managers like Ali Abdelaziz and Mali Maka, Mali Kawa, is that what you mean? Are representing a high amount of fighters on the UFC roster, do you think that makes an MMA union more likely? They're almost acting as a union, representing the interests of many fighters. Seeing how champions like John Jones, Stephen Miocic, and Jorge Maslow are starting to have problems with the UFC, do you find it more likely? I like to think so, right? Ali Abdelaziz has an insane amount of fighters that he manages. Many of them fighting for championships. So they're powerful fighters, they're high-ranked fighters that could demand for much more than your average. I like to think it would, but too many fighters have too much of self-interest. Gilbert Burns for an example, right? I don't want to knock Gilbert Burns for anything, you know, because he's just trying to fight and make money and become a champ. He's doing it for himself, and this is a selfish sport. That's just the name of the game. You know, you do what's best for you. It won't take a lot 
to make an MMA union. It'll take a lot to make a successful MMA union, right? And even the fighters that are under Kawa and Abdelaziz, a lot of them are just not going to do it. Even if Ali tells them, hey guys, let's start a union, we'll all get paid, all this stuff. Even how much they listen to the guy and they love the guy, I just think a lot of them won't commit to it. They'll probably play with the idea a bit, but they won't commit to it. Again, there's too much self-interest. If the UFC offers opportunities, it's going to cloud their mind from the whole MMA union thing, you know? They give a title shot to Gilbert Burns, he's going to take it. Like, it's just what's going to happen. The guy's not making the same kind of money than he would be if he's fighting the champ or if he becomes a champion. So the champions and the stars, they are the most likely to get behind a union. The guys are making 40, 50,000 a fight. They're just trying to make more money by progressing through the sport. The only guy that I really see talking about it that is not making a whole lot of money compared to other fighters is Sean O'Malley. How young he is. Great to hear him talk about he deserves more money, all this stuff. Most fighters are just not like that. Especially fighters who come from more of a poverty environment, a very bad environment where they're pretty much poor. They're just trying to make a living, right? They're not thinking about unions. They cannot afford missing out opportunities. Some people have to look at it that way as well. You know, when you look at Josie Aldo's life, for an example, the guy was sleeping on gym mats. He used to hear gunshots at night all the time. He was a teenager training. Let's say just like he did, he's blasting through regional scenes, getting these knockouts. He's very driven and hungry. He wants to be financially stable, but by opportunity rather than you know, strategy for a union that he necessarily probably doesn't even understand too well. He's just trying to get past this life that he's living. You know, he gets into the UFC. Now he's making $40,000 for a fight, $30,000 for a fight. This is life-changing money for the guy. This is like the goal for him now. You know, this is like, oh man, I've made it. I'm going to continue. I love the UFC. They gave me money. They gave me all this. They're going to keep going forward. The place when they start to notice that a union should be made is when they become a champion and they are financially stable right, where things don't change too much for them. After they make like six figures, maybe even seven figures, life isn't changing too much at that point, even after the next six or seven figures, you know? And they're like, you know what? I'm probably making less than those boxers. I'm making less than this guy. I should get paid more. I should get paid for my worth. But when you're young and hungry and you're either from a war-torn region like Habib or you're from poverty like Jose Aldo, name the fighter, they're not really thinking like that. They have a completely different mindset. You don't hear the newcomers or the younger generation or the fighters who are just coming into the UFC making 20 and 20. You don't hear them talking about this stuff. It's more of the guys who have been in the game for a long time, the stars of the sport or champions who have been through it. They know what it's all about. They've made money. They're finally finding their worth. So I don't see it happening, to be honest. I hope I'm wrong, but I just don't see it. Then we go to at Mike FIFA HD. What do you think will happen to the heavyweight title picture if both Stipe and DC retire after this trilogy? Which can absolutely happen. Do you just give the belt to Nganu at that point, or who would you match Nganu with for the vacant belt? First, I'd like to see Stipe Nganu too. Thoughts? Yeah, I'd love to see that as well. But if we're saying Stipe and DC retire, give Nganu the belt and just create a highlight of him annihilating. I mean, he's going to be like Thanos, erasing people in that octagon. We'll have to do like two-on-one at some point. He's cleaned out so much of the division already. There's not much, there's not many people for him to fight. He needs some light heavyweights jumping up. He's going to need some fun fights. For people to get interested or just create the Tyson effect. KO people in record time. And the last question we go to at Avante Smith 4. Has the leg kick become as important to MMA as the jab is to boxing? Uh, I wouldn't say it like that. Because boxing has a very limited toolbox for you to work with. 
compared to MMA. There's so many more techniques that are important in MMA compared to boxing, right? So I can't say there's any one technique in MMA that's as important as like a jab in boxing. But there's more techniques in MMA that are obviously important than in boxing. Boxing is a much simpler martial art where pretty much everything is important, which actually makes a jab in boxing probably way more important than any one technique in MMA. But because MMA has more techniques involved, there are more important techniques in MMA than there are in boxing. So that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you did, make sure to thumbs up. If you enjoyed my content, make sure to subscribe. And I'll see you guys in the next episode.